Hi everyone, you're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Zafsal, I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Uh, so today we uh, we are going to our quarterly insight uh, podcast and uh, just for reference, if you uh, go on to the EFG website, you can download uh, the insight or indeed if you uh, speak to your client relationship manager, you can uh, get that directly uh, via email or indeed reach out and uh, and subscribe as well to receive the insight. So uh, the idea of this podcast is to uh, go along and, and maybe go into a little bit more deeper topics, um, uh, deeper interest into the topics that we discuss within insight and uh, and draw out maybe some of the key elements and, and obviously have a discussion around that. So hopefully it brings the document to life and uh, of course, the feedback we've had so far uh, since we've been doing this for the last year or so has been has been very positive. So we certainly continue. Uh, so the front page is of the insight um, this time round is a goat, and the idea is very much uh, finding a new balance. But we start with on the panel today we have uh, obviously Paul Templeton, Dan Murray, Sam Jochim is going to be a new person uh, on the podcast this time round. Obviously, Stefan Gerlach, uh, Joaquin Tull, and Gianluigi Mandrazato. So, uh, a very um, esteemed group of colleagues on the uh, on the podcast panel uh, today. So, um, Paul, let's start with you on the overview. You know, looking at the, we have this great chart of uh, chart number two, which is this U.S. leading and lagging indicators uh, or coincident indicators, and really sort of trying to figure out where we are in the cycle, what does it all mean? Because obviously the huge distortions created by COVID has met, has met the many people are confused about the, uh, the future economic outlook. Yeah, and there's that distinction between uh, coincident indicators, which still looking reasonably okay. And although it's interesting, that was the main message from the central bankers gathering at Sintra, you know, our economies have actually been much more resilient than we sort of expected. You know, something might still go wrong, um, but it's looking okay for now. But there are leading indicators which suggest this party might not last all that long. And, you know, one that we've looked at sort of for some time now is the slope of the yield curve, probably the best known sort of leading indicator of activity uh, in the US. I mean, it also applies in sort of the Eurozone now as well. Uh, suggesting that activity sort of will weaken. Then a bit later on in the US section, we look at, well, how has that typically happened in the past? And it also applies for the UK as well. It happens, one of the main transition mechanisms, through the housing market. So in the US section, not to jump ahead too much to that, it's, you know, the, the economic cycle is basically a housing cycle. And we know in the UK, economic cycles heavily influenced by housing as well, but housing hasn't really gone wrong. Um, and so wrong in the sense of, you know, indicating there's a big, uh, big downturn in activity coming. And I don't know, one of the phrases I've put in the sort of UK section is a John Major comment, which is, you, if you listen to the BBC, you'll have heard this quite a few times just over the last few weeks. If, if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. Meaning if policy isn't tight enough, uh, it's not working on bringing down inflation. I thought, oh gosh, that sounds very, very hard, doesn't it? And I, I thought, let me go back to why he actually said that in the UK. If, if it isn't hurting, it isn't working. It goes back to a period in 1989, 
when UK interest rates were 15, 1.5%, inflation was 7.5%, and John Major, who's the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mose, I'm sure you, you, you were in the Treasury at that time, <laughs> said, well, look, yeah, it's hurting, but it'll work. And it did work. Um, but we're not in anything like that situation now. It's not even on that scale. I mean, obviously, nominal rates and inflation are so much lower on a sustainable basis. But one thing that keeps going through my mind is, well, maybe there's just not enough pain yet. Um, and that's a tricky thing to talk about, isn't it? You know, mm. But um, could get worse, could yeah. get worse. Well, I think the other thing to consider is whether the supply chain challenges we've had over the last three or four years if they are were indeed the root cause, yep, and um, they're probably not. But there's there's other demographic um, shifts that have also you know caused that. But if they were part of the cause, then uh, inflation should be coming down as we're starting to see it already. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. And my monetarist friends, I do have some. I'm very close to them actually, mm -hmm. and they're all writing. Oh, money supply growth has actually collapsed now, so we're actually doing far too much. So if you put that interpretation on the John Major line, actually it's hurting a lot. There's a big sort of collapse in money and credit growth in a lot of economies yeah. around the world now. So maybe it is hurting enough and there's enough there to bring inflation back down and uh, we've done enough. Uh, so maybe the damage to the economy is not as bad as some sort of expect. So let's move on to Stefan um, just on, on page three. Uh, around uh, inflation and, and expected inflation. There's a fascinating chart, um, uh, chart four, around how all of this converges. Um, Stefan, your thoughts? Yes, it is, it is indeed an intriguing graph, I must say. Essentially what it says is that markets are anticipating that these enormous disturbances that the world economy has undergone in the last couple of years because of COVID and because of the consequences of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine and oil prices rising and so on. They think inflation will just return to central banks' target. That is, they believe the central banks will overcome this crisis. Uh, it, 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 looks, it looks very good. Perhaps it's too good to be true. Now, you obviously have been spending a bit of time thinking about um, uh, inflation uh, and how that's coming in, of course, how the Federal Reserve in particular are going to focus on that. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts? We've we got an expected path chart there. Have your views changed since the last time you were on, on the podcast? No, no I think they, uh, they, uh, well, they're determined to bring inflation back to, um, to target um, at 2% in terms of the uh, personal, uh, in terms of the deflator for personal consumption expenditure. Um, so they, they hope, well, they plan to bring the CPI inflation back to 2.5%. And to do that, they they will just jack up rates and maintain them at a high level for for as long as that is being uh, that's necessary. And I guess what exact level that would be has never really been clear. And and they probably will push up rates a little bit further to to achieve that. But uh, but um, this is indeed a uh, belated uh, surgical strike on inflation in the in the U.S. and in many other countries. Uh, it is an unprecedented tightening a monetary uh, policy by the standards of the last, at least the last 40 years. Now, what's interesting is when we look at the, um, uh, the volatility readings associated with all this uncertainty with, do they raise rates, don't they raise rates, what's inflation outlook going to be? Um, 
and uh, inflation outlook is going to be. And, and it's fascinating to see that uh, volatility in, in equities has come down quite dramatically. But volatility in bonds has done a bit, but still very, very elevated, which yeah. uh, you know, still portends this very sort of um, uncertain environment that, that we're in. And uh, certainly the conclusion I've come to is that, uh, certainly looking at markets over the last few months, is that um, uh, you know there's a very high probability that central bankers will be wrong again uh, in in this, and and, and the market is um, certainly leading to that sort of um, very high volatility because it's so uncertain. Because I, I think that's the, that's exactly the point. I mean, there's so much uncertainty about monetary policy, and therefore so much uncertainty about market expectations of monetary policy. But I think I cut Paul off there. I think the other surprising thing about that is the the strength of the equity market has been on what some people describe as long duration sort of assets, the tech stocks and so on, which are supposed to benefit from very low interest rates. Yeah, yeah. Well, the sector that's benefited most this year has been the tech sector. Yeah. Much higher interest rates. So, sorry, Stefan, that was an ancillary point. As but... as, uh, along with consumer discretionary. Exactly. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> your, your, your sector pick for My the year. My sector pick for the year, yeah. Yes, exactly. Stefan, you were, you were saying. No, I was just saying there is uh, there has been so much uncertainty about monetary policy, and of course that's sort of filtered into markets' expectations. And and as markets and participants have changed their views about the outlook, bond prices and bond deals have been have been um, quite volatile. And I think that's what really this graph uh, brings out. And hopefully, as it becomes clearer that inflation is turning, it becomes clearer to predict, or easier to predict how monetary policy will unfold. Uh, this volatility will uh, will decline. Let's move on then on to, to page five and, and on to the United States. Uh, and, you know, um, the big debate is the hugely inverted yield curve and what it portends to economic growth. And then we've got a really interesting chart on housing, US housing starts. They're actually picking up, <laughs> Daniel. It's really a very interesting development here because it's not often we see this. No, very unusual. And you know, there is this view out there that um, the business cycle and the housing cycle are exactly the same thing. So it's really odd to see this divergence. I think you know you, you will only know with hindsight, obviously, what really happened. But it is certainly notable that the housing market is being you know pretty strong despite the fact that borrowing costs have gone up by so much. In such a short space of time and as you noted despite the fact that we've got other recessionary indicators i think there's probably a couple of structural things going on one is um that uh there's probably you know been a shift in a permanent shift in working practices after covid so obviously more people working from home and people investing more in making their home space nice and their you know, a pleasant place to be not just to live in but also to work in so i think that's probably part of it and then uh, I think also is probably the fact that there just hasn't been sufficient housing built in the US over the past, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, probably since the global financial crisis, to satisfy the demand that just naturally grows by virtue of the demographics. Now, that certainly has been pro- probably the distorting factor, um, certainly there. And, and you know, the, I mean, this sort of tick up in the housing start, they continued this month as well. So, you know, that uh, certainly suggesting so. Um, I'm listening to debate that a bit because it's, a, it's an important point. Is housing and business, do you think, different this time because of the distortions? 
I think, you know, you always have to try to sort of separate the cyclical from the structural. And I think clearly there is strong underlying structural support for US housing. Um, I think at some point it would be sensible to expect there to be some impact from higher borrowing costs. That's just natural. If it becomes more expensive to buy property, then there's bound to be some impact. But it is notable just how resilient the housing market has been. So I think the cycle will probably be less pronounced in housing than during uh, previous broad economic downturns. I guess the other thing is unemployment rate is still, what, three and a half? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, unemployed people also struggle to buy houses regardless of the rate of interest. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So that probably goes hand in hand. Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating, you know, fascinating development uh, in terms of how this, and I think, I guess this all portends to, you know, one of the scenarios we've been certainly talking about over the last, six months in particular has been this kind of soft landing scenario. It feels like a soft landing, um, but we know historically soft landings are quite unique. Yeah, they're, they're very unusual. To some extent, it probably doesn't matter too much if it's a soft landing or a mild recession. Mm. Um, I think um, you know, what is interesting is that the growth outlook for this year has been steadily revised higher. And uh, actually, the growth outlook for next year has been steadily revised lower, and the two are now roughly the same. Right. So the US economy not expected to expand that much this year or next year, but nonetheless, positive growth, which relative to expectations of, you know, say, six or nine months ago is a, is a pretty good outcome. Um, and, uh, you know, even within that context, you could still easily get a quarter or two of negative growth. You know, the MBER might technically call it a recession with the benefit of hindsight. But uh, it wouldn't necessarily affect the fact that you you, know, you still get a positive expansion in GDP both this year and next year, mm. albeit relatively modest. Mm, absolutely. So let's move on to um, a less flexible economy these days, uh, which is the UK. Um, and uh, just bring Joaquin in here. Obviously, the big debate uh, more recently in the UK is how high interest rates have been uh in the uk and as expectations of higher rates continue consensus seems to be a six percent is is um uh handle is is looming large uh, may not quite get there but you know that's the directionality and it's all down to this kind of sticker inflation uh joaquin yeah that's right so it's clear that the bank of england has committed to to bring inflation back to to its two percent target but so far the progress has been very slow, and 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 this is where the, the phrase that Paul mentioned at the beginning of, of if it's not hurting, it's not working. And certainly, it seems or it feels that it's not working much in the UK, and much more tightening uh, will be needed. Like uh, rates have come up quite significantly now to to five percent, uh, including the the last uh, fifty basis points hike at the last minute. But um, inflation remains quite elevated, over over eight percent, and core inflation remains close to seven percent. So. Although we know that monetary policy works with with lags, the persistence of some of the inflationary pressures uh, has has surprised um, the, the the MPC and and, and all, all of us as, uh, as analysts. Um, so yeah, expectations currently anticipate that rates in the UK could could get to levels close to to six percent by the end of this year, and this would lead to a much larger deceleration uh, in economic activity than what we have previously anticipated. And in terms of thinking deeper about the causes. Because the key thing is, is um, um, uh, you know, some of it's structural. We know Brexit and so on and so forth has only caused some of these more structural issues. Um, I guess 
are we just going to be having, say, pre-sort of EU uh, period where the UK always had, you know, Europe had the lowest inflation, UK was, you know, was then it was the US and the UK always had the highest um, uh, inflation rates. Um, I guess the key question for us and for investors is that the world that's going to be returning that we will just have just a higher inflation rate than, than we used to. And, and yeah, we could argue that bank of England is, I've got my speech marks up here, independent. Um, but, uh, um, you, you know, some of those issues are certainly ones that, you know, we investors will have to grapple with in the future. Well, certainly I think now the UK is starting to feel the inflationary effects of having a much more rigid labor market, which remains strong. And this is one that has been supporting some of the spending on, on services, which has been one of the key drivers of, of inflation more recently. So uh, these, um, these vacancies that, that come out in, 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 the, in the UK labor market are those in sectors that historically depended on, on a lot of on people coming from outside the UK and uh, uh, and from the EU in particular. So this strong wage growth, both in, in the private and the public sector, let's say, have contributed to, to some of these second round effects. And that goes into more of your question on, on what are the roots of this. Um, and companies have been able to pass this increase to uh, to the final price. So particularly, as I was saying, in, in the services sector. So um, this is having a, a key issue. And at the same time, uh, consumers not only see their real income let's say, decline because of inflation, but they're also seeing the effects on on higher mortgage rates uh, and the weakening of the of the housing sector, which is key for, for the UK uh, economy. And a bit different to, to what Daniel was saying, what was happening in the in the US with here, borrowing is quite different. It's much more shorter in terms of the, the, the length of the, of the mortgages than, than in the US. And therefore, this has a, a much uh, larger effects on, on on people that have to remortgage or have to renegotiate their mortgages. So it's not surprising to see that these tighter conditions are now starting to have a um, uh, to to reflect, let's say, a decline in the housing prices uh, and that affordability of some of these new houses uh, are now starting to to decline, um, particularly for those now entering uh, in, in in the housing market. So. Yes, I think we will start to see uh, quite a different economy from, from now on. Uh, the, now the real effects of, of uh, the post-pandemic and the, the Brexit uh, aftermath are now starting to be felt. Uh, and we're probably going to end up with a much more inflationary economy in, in which uh, maybe ownership of houses is not going to be as prevalent as, as before, or at least for, 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 uh, for some time being. Absolutely. It's certainly going to be uh, a challenge that uh, is going to have to be met and we have a UK election next year. So uh, mm-hmm. um, um, no doubt there's going to be some change there uh, or highly likely to be some change there as well. Uh, so let's move on to uh, Eurozone and, uh, you know, back to Stefan. So anniversaries galore plus permanent crisis in Europe. Pretty much, pretty much. I think we must have, uh, yeah, we've had a long, many, many years of uh, of tensions in the euro area, but it's uh, it's still going strong. And I think what's interesting is that um, so we, you know we draw out in this uh, uh, in this article at how we've had um, you, know, you know obviously we had the euro crisis. Um, there's a great chart there on uh, chart 18, sort of describing it. We obviously have had. 
uh, interventions as well uh, on currencies ever since the beginning. Um, and of course, we had um, coronavirus um, and COVID, uh, also uh, another crisis. And of course, the glo- global financial crisis. And we've had quite a lot thrown at this uh, system, but it's still surviving. Yes, it is, and I think it's it's uh, it's easy to underestimate. I think uh, the uh, the sort of the, the the forces that pull the whole uh, European Union and the uh, Euro and the Euro area uh, together, and these are constructs, uh, and there are policymakers and and uh, uh, um, civil servants and central bankers in Frankfurt and so on who have spent their entire professional career, the last 40 years, uh, thinking about Europe and how to manage things within Europe and, and to avoid crisis and so on. And in, in sort of some way, I think, uh, rather than asking ourselves, you know, w- will the euro survive this most recent shock or this shock or that shock? Maybe it make more sense to ask what will have to be done for the euro to survive uh, you know, the most recent shock. And we've seen enormous uh, innovation there, uh, I think, in the European Union. And I'm, you know, most recently now with respect, with respect to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which has oh, yeah. completely changed the security situation. There lots of developments mm-hmm. uh, that you would never have anticipated a few years, a few, a few years ago. Yeah, it does beg the question, and you know, we know that foreign investors have been so pessimistic around the euro and the eurozone. Uh, just imagine what would happen if there's a bit of stability <laughs> for a while. Um, it would probably be quite positive, is my guess. Um, um, I, I think you're quoting some statistics uh, just a little bit earlier. Yes, I think there was. I mean. Um... Uh, I think it might even have been in in in, in this piece. I mean, if you just look at the uh, surveys uh, of of people that are asked, how likely do you think it is that the euro will survive another year? And if you sort of if you had a time series of, of that, uh, after twenty five years, after twenty five years, uh, with almost any probability, you would have thought the euro would uh, would uh, would. Uh, would have collapsed. I just calculated it for myself. I hope this calculation is correct. But if you if you think that the likelihood that the euro will will collapse is ten percent next year, after twenty five years, the likelihood that it will be around is something like seven percent. Um, so, so I think I think investors have been very pessimistic uh, about about the the, the survivability of, of the eurozone, and perhaps they've been a little a little bit too. Too too frightened to hold some some uh, some euro area assets. That's mm-hmm. uh, so very very fascinating. So I guess one of the biggest beneficiaries of all of this perceived uncertainty um, has been Switzerland. So Gianluigi, um, uh, the safe haven in the region. Uh, yes, of course. Switzerland continued to fare pretty well economically speaking, and uh, uh, it is also. So to say, enjoying a lower inflation than um, uh, most other developed countries, and that is reflected in a strong currency, as it has been for the past decades and continues to be currently okay. Not last because the Swiss national bank, despite this relatively low inflation rate, continued to anticipate 
or at least to signal that there is a high likelihood that uh, interest rates will rise further at the end of the summer. Absolutely. I think um, it'll be very interesting. And I guess that now brings some risk to growth, I guess, if those interest rates uh, increases do come to pass. Yes, yeah, Switzerland, uh, in any case, is, is well, it is not completely isolated from the shocks uh, in, in the surrounding euro area. And unsurprisingly, it has uh, suffered a bit of a slowdown in the last few quarters, not last because of the tightening of monetary policy. And uh, however, despite that, uh, which was indeed a risk that the uh, Swiss National Bank itself acknowledged in the last monetary policy assessment, they as I continue to signal that our interest rate will likely rise further in September. And that, of course, will uh, raise the risk that these, uh, the, the chances that these risks uh, crystallize and we have an even slower economy. Indeed, already this year, compared to last year, the Swiss economic growth will be much uh, lower, just around 1%, possibly below 1%, as uh, compared to between 2 and 2.5% last year. And uh, as said, as, as it is true for the rest of the world economy, risks for the remainder of the year seems to be still tilted to the downside. So let's talk about some upside risks, um, which is uh, in Asia. And um, uh, welcome, Sam, to the podcast. I think this is the first time you've been, uh, you've been on. So uh, good to have you on. Thank you very much. Uh, so let's talk about um, uh, China. Obviously, um, uh, a, a number of challenges um, going on at the moment. Obviously, there's been a little bit of disappointment at the beginning of the year around Chinese economic growth. Uh, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Um, uh, looking certainly over the next six to nine months. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the comparisons China are making in terms of their growth outlook this year is based on a year that was impacted massively by zero COVID restrictions. So when you're looking at these year on year comparisons, growth actually doesn't look that bad, particularly if we're looking at things like retail sales. But then when we look at month on month data, you can see that the momentum certainly fading. What, what I think benefits China for Q2, and I was, I was looking at this earlier, Last year in Q2, there was a real negative quarter of growth in quarter on quarter terms, which means that actually, even if the Chinese economy was to contract by around 1% quarter on quarter for Q2, actually, the year on year number is still going to be around 6%. So that's really, I guess, going to boost sentiment. But certainly the underlying data there is still weakening. And the base effect isn't so positive looking forward to Q3. So I think Beijing's recognized that some stimulus will be needed, um, particularly with infrastructure investment, which is certainly looking weaker. In the piece, we, we draw some parallels. Uh, and this is all about the demographic changes that are going to happen in China uh, and comparing them to Japan and what that means to sort of housing and, and, um, and credit in general. Um, how scary are those charts? I mean, I mean, yeah, they don't look good, especially I think we, we talk about structural issues in China and, you know, we can talk about the youth unemployment rate, which is reaching record highs and only looks set to get worse this year. Um, but the demographic one is really a problem. I think the UN projected that China's population will be 46% below its current level by 2100. And you compare that to India, for example, which overtook it as the most populous country this year. Um, and that's expected to be 9% larger by 2100. 
um, and and that can't really have a positive effect on housing prices. And you and you see, um, I think we've mentioned it in the in the insight that they've doubled in the last ten years. But over over this year, certainly post pandemic, they've been in decline. Um, Beijing aren't happy about that. Definitely, I think it's partially a deleveraging effect. But I think Beijing wanted to deleverage the real estate sector at a much slower pace than is actually happening, which I think for this year, we'll see some stimulus, some fiscal stimulus, which supports um, real estate and slows down that deleveraging. But over the long run, it will certainly act as a drag on growth. I also think um, if we if we look at the parallels with Japan, it's really interesting. Um, one key difference I would point out is that actually in 1989 1990 the bank of japan was hiking interest rates massively it's quite interesting because the current governor ueda was sitting on the board and was one of the few members who was voting against these rate hikes mm. um but right now the people's bank of china is definitely not in tightening mode it's definitely in stimulus mode so i guess those are just long-term demographic comparisons but not necessarily cyclical ones uh, in terms of where we are uh, today uh, so uh, we're flipping over to the other side of the world, to Joaquin and uh, Latin America. And uh, you know, Brazil has been very strong in the last uh, quarter, certainly has been one of the strongest markets in, in dollar terms. And uh, I suspect a bit of a surprise for many who were very dour about um, Lula and his prospects. Yeah, exactly. And if we were talking before about the UK, about things not working very well, I think Brazil is maybe an example of where things are starting to uh, to work. And they have quite a lot of success with, with inflation. Like if, you're, if you're looking into the document on page 10, chart 29, it's, it's quite telling with the level of monetary tightening that, that was uh, achieved since, um, since March of 2021. Uh, and it has worked to bring inflation down to under 4%, uh, which is expected now to remain there for, for the rest of 2023 and, and 2024. Um, interest rates are high. They're over 13%. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure now mounting on the central bank authorities to start easing, uh, particularly from the government, which have seen how the economy has uh, played out pretty well in the first quarter uh, of the year. And they don't want to break things by keeping rates too high and, and, and continue to add some pressure on, on activity. So clearly uncertainty over the fiscal policy has started to clear. Uh, there's much more um, focus on, 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 the, on the new fiscal reform that has now kind of passed with, with the new rule. Um, and they are expecting, or we would say that it's, it's quite likely that the central bank will start cutting rates at the next meeting in, in August or, or in September, it will be one of the two probably, um, with uh, recent estimates from, from the central bank that uh, the, the new neutral rate, which is kind of the, the, the main discussion in the last quarterly inflation report, could be somewhere in between 4% or 4.5%. So there's quite a lot of monetary easing that could be coming to Brazil in, in the next coming uh, couple of months. And as you said, uh, the markets have been buying into this Brazilian story with returns year to date and Brazilian stocks of, of around 6% in local currency. But when once you add the difference of the strength of the of the real, uh, returns in dollar terms is just over 15%. So it's quite a significant uh, turnaround for uh, for Latin American largest economy. And well predicted, by the way, Joaquin, that uh, certainly did, uh, has, has been uh, the big surprise over the last um, 
uh, this is only over the last three or four months after a very strong, relatively strong 2022. Uh, so the last topic uh, on page 11 is uh, our special focus topic. And in this time round, we have AI uh, and obviously a very, very uh, popular topic. It was actually um, on my last uh, podcast. Um, uh, again, very interesting. And uh, uh, everyone is talking about it. So, uh, Paul, what is your unique plan to uh, to uh, to describe AI? My unique plan is to put myself out of a job. So, uh, Mose, following your brief, uh, I used ChatGPT to write this piece on AI, and um, I said because I got ChatGPT on my sort of iPhone and. So I was I was relaxed. It was in the evening. I'd had a glass of wine, I seem to remember. And I said, produce a SWOT analysis of AI to chat GPT. And it produced one. And uh, there were three points under strength, three under weaknesses, three under opportunities, three under threats. I thought, gosh, this all looks absolutely fine. It was written in a sort of bullet point type of way. So my human intervention was to put some, you know, words around that and make it a little bit more user friendly. Um, but the diagram, I think, which is taken from your previous podcast with uh, Jonathan, mm. I think is really interesting. And it, worry, it worries me. Because the diagram is uh, the opportunities from AI in terms of, you know, how human communication can change. Um, we talk about things like our insight document. So three stages, uh, creation, duplication, and distribution. We go, go in reverse order. Distribution used to be from things like newspapers and printed material. Well, no, we, we still print some things, but not really any longer. It's sort of all sort of distributed sort of on the internet. Duplication, we used to use a printing press. Well, that you don't need that any longer. It's all done sort of via, you know, PC or you know, stuff on your phone. And so really what I've done with this, you know, using ChatGPT is about the creation process, the first process. It used to involve sort of sitting down with and, and writing stuff either at a keyboard or with a pen, paper or whatever. But now, and this was Jonathan's claim, um, well, you can get ChatGPT to do it. Mm. And I suppose the slightly frightening thing was that it did a pretty good job. <laughs> um, I have a few reservations. Um, if you try and do it, so it, I, I put in, um, do a SWOT analysis for Brazil, because I thought, let's try and get rid of Joaquim. We don't really <laughs> need him any longer. And actually, the answer wasn't very good. It was too generic, and it didn't include any sort of current stuff on sort of policy tightening and so on. So I think my takeaway from this is it, it can work very well in doing a generic thing. Maybe it's quite good for doing a homework assignment for your kids or whatever, or answering some sort of quite generic questions, but not very good on on the specifics but still uh, amazingly powerful and i think that certainly just shows it because that's probably a, a very decent swot analysis of uh, of, of ai I, I can't think what what is missing in that particular point i think the text has got all of the main points that you would <laughs> if you had a, a radio 4 discussion on ai or whatever then they're all in there yeah, yeah. i think um the last point would have found interesting is, is uh talking to um, uh, someone who's uh, uh, an eminent expert in AI, and uh, one of the things he, that he mentioned that I thought was very interesting is talking about lawyers, and um, the view was that um, that uh, you won't need many lawyers 
because ChatGPT can can take it all. And his view was actually completely the opposite. He said, no, absolutely not. We'll actually get more lawyers uh, coming in. And I said, well, how does that work? He said, well, uh, someone who's, who hasn't gone to school uh, for seven years as a lawyer can now come into the profession, use chat GPT, have some sort of acc accreditation, and suddenly you can have thousands of lawyers because the seven-year or 10-year sort of process you need to go become a lawyer is no longer needed. So the barriers to entry to that industry actually becomes very low uh, and um, you actually get more. Yep, yep. That's a frightening thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you need a human, human oversight. Yeah. Yes, you do need human oversight. Okay, with that uh, uh, topic, I think we'll, uh, we'll call it a day. Um, uh, again, thank you very much, uh, gentlemen, for uh, taking us through this uh, document. Uh, always interesting, always fascinating uh, to get into uh, the detail and the depths. And, um, and um, uh, you know, um, it was, uh, again, very interesting. And maybe we are the goats. The goats. I didn't know what a goat was until you mentioned earlier. <laughs> greatest of all times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Very good. So the greatest of all time insight. Thank you very much. Great. <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, and we'll speak to you next time.